Hey, it's Martine. So today is the last day to support Post Reports by signing up for a subscription to The Washington Post. A subscription gets you unlimited access to everything that we publish, but it also directly supports the show and the work of Post journalists around the world who are working to uncover the next big story. Podcast listeners can get one year of unlimited access to the post for just $29. That is $29 for the whole year, less than a dollar a week. Learn more and subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe, or click the link in today's show notes. I hope you'll consider it, and thanks. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Wootson with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, June 25th. Today, the race to find survivors and answers in the Surfside condo collapse. And a conversation with our new executive editor. When you see something like this, it really is a unique type of tragedy uh, to have in the middle of the night uh, a half of a building just collapse like that. And um, it's, it's tough. Um, it's, it's been gut-wrenching for, for an awful lot of people. Uh, but I'll tell you, uh, nobody is quitting here. Uh, and we are going to stand by those families and we're going to stand by um, everyone uh, that's been displaced. Uh, you can guarantee that. So can you tell us what happened? Sometime around 1.30 in the morning on Thursday, a 12-story condo building, oceanfront, in Surfside, Florida, just north of Miami Beach, suddenly vanished, just collapsed, pancaked. And everyone inside is in the rubble. Mark Fisher is a senior editor at The Post. In the first hours after the collapse, there was only one body that had been found. Now, just overnight, uh, coming into Friday morning, we saw the removal of a couple more bodies in yellow body bags for a total of four confirmed dead at this point. But the number of missing has been rising, and the mayor of Dade County issued a statement this morning, Friday morning, saying that there are now 159 people they believe are missing uh, inside that mountain of rubble. There's been a frantic effort to see if there are any survivors, to take care of the people who were in the part of the building that didn't collapse, and to understand uh, how such a horrible thing could happen. What are some of the accounts that we've heard from witnesses or people who were in neighboring buildings about what that moment was like at the collapse? Our reporters on the ground in South Florida have been fanning out and talking to any number of the loved ones uh, who, who were in Champlain Towers and the part of the building that still stood, uh, residents there, people who were out on the street walking their dog. Lots of people saw, heard, and felt what happened, and they've presented these extraordinary, compelling tales of uh, that moment of shock, uh, the few moments it took to register what had happened, and then the the horrific aftermath. So I went to go take a shower and I like, I came out of the shower, I perfectly dried myself and I was like about to get dressed. Then I hear like a big boom and I was like, 
oh no, something's not like right. And I just like, I ran out of the bathroom and I like, I checked and I thought, cause like, felt like the whole ceiling was like collapsing. We were like the first family out. And then there was like another family who just came out and they came from the elevator. And they're like, you don't even understand. We felt like rumbling like inside the elevator. Then you see like slowly by slowly, like this part is like falling and this part's falling. And you're just like, is this building falling? Is this building not fall gonna fall? Is it like an earthquake? Like what's going on? While I was walking the dog, I, I felt the ground shake um, and I heard a uh, large sound, you know, um, almost sounded like thunder. Um, I was about a block away. Went around the building to kind of get a better angle and I, I could hear somebody yelling, somebody screaming. And then we were, we were able to hear that it was a little boy by his voice and we were able to see his hand waving. Like I said, it was just sheer panic. I mean, I can hear him yelling, you know, don't leave me, don't leave me. So, you know, and he said that his mom was in there with him as well, but I couldn't hear her or see her, so. We got an officer to come over, um, so he climbed up the rubble with us. Um, he was able to see the boy and he radioed to, to get firefighters to come over and they began to, to extract him. It was like a mini 9-11. I, I mean, absolutely, it looked like the World Trade Centers. These were, these were people's homes and, you know, <laughs> you don't, you don't think of home as a place where you're going to be in danger in this kind of way or, you know, that you could possibly lose your life because your home is going to drop out from beneath you. Can you describe what the recovery effort has been since then to try to find the people who were inside this building? It's an army of rescue workers using drones and sonar and drills and dogs searching for any possible sign of life. Mayor, if we can, um, first, thank you for briefing us. This is still a search and rescue operation. Have you seen anything that leads you to believe there are still people alive there? We will continue search and rescue because we still have hope that we will find people alive. That is exactly why we're continuing and uh, that, that is why we're using our dogs and our sonar and our uh, cameras, everything possible, to seek places where there may still be people uh, to be found. Uh, there's a weird banging noise that keeps coming up, and the fire rescue people keep talking about that banging sound they hear, but they don't know if that's someone in the rubble making that sound or equipment or furniture or pieces of wreckage clanging against other pieces of wreckage. They've had no human voices emerge from the rubble pile for uh, at least 24 hours. No, very early on, on that first night, a young boy and his mother were extracted. The boy had been calling out and, and there'd been no other such voices. So it's a pretty grim prospect, and just a block or two away, there are more than 100 family members gathered uh, hoping that someone does hear one of those sounds, mm. but there's been no, no report of anything like that. So right now it is about midday on Friday, and it feels like there are still so many questions that we don't have about why this happened and how this happened. Can you talk through some of the unknowns that officials are trying to figure out at this point? There are almost as many theories about what may have happened as there are experts positing those theories. It ranges from there was roof work being done on this building. Maybe that had something to do with it. There had been patches made in the garage of this building. 
That's another possibility. There's heavy construction going on next door, and people who live in Champlain Towers had complained that their building shook as this construction was taking place. There was always water in the garage and the lower reaches of the building. But this is South Florida, and there's water under everything. This is immediately beachside property. And South Florida buildings, especially the tall ones, sit in this very precarious way on underground pools and pockets of seawater within the very brittle limestone that makes up the ground in that part of the country. Uh, So you really have to drive pilings very deep into the ground to get to something absolutely rock solid. But all of that aside, tall buildings stand in South Florida for decades, if not centuries. This is not normal. This is not usual. This is not immediately explicable. And so the experts have all of these factors that they're considering, whether salt water had worn away at the concrete in the basement, in the garage. That's what they'll be looking at in the days and weeks and probably months to come. The fact that this is oceanfront property that we're talking about, and you mentioned the fact that people had noticed water rising in the basement. I'm from Miami, and I know that dealing with water is a normal part of living in Miami, but I also feel like that's why so many people are asking questions about climate change. Like, could this be a product of a rising sea level having a real tangible effect on infrastructure there that people didn't quite expect? Are there any suggestions that that could be the case? Certainly people are bringing that up, but from all the experts we've been talking to, that seems highly unlikely. Yes, of course, climate change is causing a a significant shift in the water table. There are streets in Miami Beach, much like in Venice, where when the water is high, uh, you sort of have to put your waders on and and you're told not to drive there and that sort of thing. Inevitably, there's going to be uh, some reckoning with the fact that some of the low-lying housing in the area is going to have to be either lifted up on stilts or some way otherwise protected from the water. Uh, But the underground water has not undermined other buildings, and this is something that engineers have been looking at very closely as they examine the impact of climate change. So there's been no indication that that's a factor here. Since there are so many open questions about what actually caused this, are there concerns that other buildings nearby could also be at risk or efforts to either get people out of there or make sure that they are not going to collapse anytime soon? Certainly, there are a lot of sleepless nights uh, over these last couple of nights among people who live in the nearby buildings. It's a natural worry for people to have, and they're having it. Uh, That said, the engineers say there's absolutely no reason to think that any other building nearby or uh, on the Miami Beach uh, is endangered at this point. They did evacuate the still-standing part of Champlain Towers, and it's uh, fairly certain that the folks who live there will never see the insides of their apartments again. What is going to happen next in all of this? Well, they've already begun to dismantle and take down uh, the standing portion of the building. There's a continuing search and rescue effort in that mountain of rubble that's going to continue for hours, if not days. Late 
Thursday night into Friday morning, the federal government and its assistance apparatus kicked in, the president declaring an emergency which allows federal resources from FEMA and other agencies to be uh, sent to South Florida to help out. The local officials had obviously swarmed over this site with all kinds of rescue equipment and personnel, many of whom worked for 24 straight hours and are just Friday morning being relieved by rescue workers who are coming in from Naples and Orlando and Central Florida. And so there are federal resources that can be brought to bear and will be in the coming days, both in the investigative form and in that immediate rescue operation. The investigations obviously just beginning. That will continue for quite some time. There will obviously be political recriminations and all of that Already the first lawsuit has been filed. There will be a lot more of that. Insurance companies will be involved and so on. But the immediate issues are the families, the loved ones, and and what uh, information, if any, they're able to glean about the people who are missing. And then we'll get into probably a months or years long process of figuring out what happened, who's responsible, and what can be done to secure any buildings that might share any of these characteristics. Mark Fisher is a senior editor at The Post. This story was produced by Emma Talkoff. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. I'm just wondering, has someone shown you the bell, the bell from <laughs> the bell from our podcast that it, in the um, in the theme music at the beginning, you'll hear like the ring of a bell. And that's because there's an actual physical <laughs> bell in the newsroom. So, like, have you seen the bell? Do you know that the bell is still there? <laughs> have you been introduced to the bell? I, I just saw the bell. I mean, I ha- I was not actually familiar with the bell my first couple of weeks here, but now I am initiated into the bell. Here at The Post, we have a new face in the newsroom. This person is our boss. Her name is Sally Busby. She started earlier this month. And we wanted to give you, our listeners, a chance to get to know the person who helps shape the journalism that you hear every day. I'm Sally Busby, and I am the new executive editor of The Washington Post, which basically means that I am the top editor in the newsroom and hopefully working really collaboratively with a bunch of people to make the journalism at The Post as good as possible. You know, I think that a lot of people who have never worked in a newspaper don't exactly know, like, what does an executive editor do? So I'm wondering if you can just talk me through a little bit more of, like, what your role is and kind of what your primary responsibilities are. 
I think there's several things. I mean, some of it is just essentially the strategy of the newsroom. What do we choose to cover every day? What topics do we think are the most important over the course of a year? And then how do we organize ourselves to do that? And then I think the job involves a lot of things. It's talent development and sort of inspiring and motivating the journalists. These are hard jobs and they're busy jobs and getting the best staff that we can, making that staff as diverse as it can be, and then doing the best journalism that we can. And then also there's just a very clear role in terms of making sure that the Post's standards and ethics and fairness and accuracy stay up to the level that everyone expects. So you are coming to this job from having led the Associated Press. But I want to go back to way before that and the very beginnings of your career in journalism. Where did you grow up? Like, how did you first get into this line of business? What was your path toward becoming a journalist? You know, when I was growing up, I read newspapers. And I grew up in the Midwest of the United States. And to me, newspapers were sort of a way to understand the broader world. My family didn't travel a lot or anything like that. So the way I sort of learned about the broader world was probably through newspapers. And then when I was in college, I actually thought that I was going to be an English professor or something like that. And then I started working in journalism and just loved it. Loved the adrenaline rush, loved how journalism allowed me to go out and talk to a whole range of people and kind of get out into the world. I love the fact that you said that you grew up reading your local newspaper, and that's how you first kind of understood what journalism was. And I had that same experience where my parents subscribed to a paper, and there were columnists that they were obsessed with, and I would read the comics, and then eventually I started to branch out to reading other parts of the paper. But, you know, I've had the experience that I think a lot of people have had, which is seeing my hometown paper really shrink, really struggle. And I think that is really emblematic of what's happening in local journalism around the country. So I'm wondering, like, where you think the post fits into that, because sometimes I worry that people who listen to this podcast, perhaps, like, that they hear about stuff that's happening around the world, but maybe they don't hear about stuff that's happening in their own communities. Obviously, a lot of what is happening to newspapers is driven by changing readership, and it's very much how people now want to get information. The ad market in the U.S. has been changed radically by technology companies. And that model is really under a lot of pressure. And, you know, I think what we're all looking for is what is the next generation of local and regional news? And how do the existing news organizations, how do they evolve so that they can become um, financially stable in the future? And it's a very rough situation right now. I think the Post plays a role in just trying to make sure that there's accountability journalism in places, not just Washington. And to me, the Post can be in kind of a unique position to to almost be a model of how you do serious journalism and how you grow that digital audience. And I think the hope a lot of us have is that that could sort of pave the way and be a model that perhaps other news organizations can learn from and 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 try to prosper from. But it's a tough situation. So you have been on the job for not very long now here at the post, right? Like three weeks, a month? How long? This is this is the start of my four of my fourth week. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, so apparently you've already had a very 
I guess, eventful uh, few weeks so far. You recently met with Merrick Garland, Attorney General, to discuss the Department of Justice efforts to secretly obtain phone records from Post reporters. They were also trying to obtain phone records from the New York Times and CNN. So can you explain to me, like, why was the government trying to get our colleagues' records? So there's still a lot that we don't know, obviously, and that the public doesn't know about what happened. And the Justice Department has said that there's an inspector general's investigation that's going on to try to figure out exactly what happened and to make that information public. What we know is that The Post was notified and The New York Times was notified and CNN was notified that there had been efforts to get phone records and email records from journalists at all three news organizations that apparently had started a couple of years ago during the Trump administration and then in some cases had carried over to the Biden administration. And in some cases, there were actually court-imposed gag orders that the government had sought to prevent the Times and CNN in these cases from even revealing that the government's efforts were going on. So we feel it was a pretty suppressive set of government actions. These were connected presumably to leaks investigations that the government was launching. So the government was trying to prevent people who work for the federal government from leaking information to journalists. Mm -hmm. Which is a, a big part of how we do our jobs and how we understand what's happening inside of the government is people who work there feeling like they need to discuss what they've seen and what they've heard, especially when they believe that there are problems there. Right. I mean, you know, as journalists, we believe that the public has a right to know what the government is doing and that in many cases, there are things that are happening that the public has a right to know. And the only way to get that information out is for journalists to very aggressively report on what the government is doing. If the government is targeting the phone and email records of journalists, then that is going to just have a very deep chilling effect on government officials' willingness to do whistleblowing or any of those sorts of things that we think are so critical to the First Amendment in the United States. So we tried to push back pretty hard and say, this is not appropriate. There need to be stronger guidelines so that this is absolutely not happening with this level of frequency. And so Attorney General Garland had said that the Justice Department is going to tighten the policies around obtaining journalist records. But do you think that there is still a a reason to be concerned here? Our goal, I think, as news organizations is to get the guidelines as tight and as firm and as tough as they can possibly be and get them in writing so that it becomes much more difficult for federal officials to do this. And I think we also are trying for as much transparency as possible. The gag orders, I think, are very problematic because it it means that news organizations can't even fight the government's efforts to do this kind of thing. And you really need knowledge that something is happening in order to be able to fight it in court. So I think those are the things we would be pushing for. And I think it's just going to take sustained effort to get these First Amendment protections as strong as they can possibly be, both now and into the future. So I want to talk a little bit about objectivity and neutrality, which is something that I think is a huge part of conversations inside of newsrooms around the country. I know that there are conversations I have with my colleagues and friends in journalism 
basically on a daily basis. Because I think that many of us are trying to understand, like, what does it mean to be, quote unquote, objective, especially in this era of of politics and what it means to be in America right now. So I guess for you, what do you think it means to be objective at a time when even stating facts and stating the truth can be seen as political or in political opposition? I've sort of tried to avoid in some ways using the word objective simply because it has become very politicized. There's that that word in and of itself. So I think what journalism has to do, essentially, is it has to, first of all, there are facts in the world. I mean, the world is a physical, concrete place, and there are things that factually happen. And I think journalism has to be very fact-based. It has to be very accuracy-based. And it also needs to be fair. There are radically different ways that people view the world. Journalists are not robots. They obviously have their backgrounds, their upbringings. I have my background someone who is a man who's white, a man who's a person of color, a woman who's a person of color, we're all going to come from our individual backgrounds, and those absolutely create the people that we are. And I think it's wrong to try to strip that away or to pretend that we can strip that away. But what we do strive, I think, to do as journalists is to be fair and accurate and to try to reflect a wide variety of perceptions of the world and beliefs in the journalism that we do. And so we have like a very strong kind of responsibility to ensure that we're not just reflecting one side of the world. Obviously, racist beliefs are bad things, and we shouldn't be giving them, quote-unquote, equal time in our stories, but we should actually be striving to provide a wide range of what people think and the reasons behind why they think it. So the word objective, it's kind of the way we used to talk about it. But I think some of the same underlying principles, if you strip away the word objective and you talk about journalism should be accurate, journalism should be fair, and journalism should be wide-ranging, I think you can get to a place where you still understand the value that that kind of information can bring. It's not trying to tell people what they should think. It's trying to provide them solid information nuanced information and wide-ranging information so that they can make up their own minds about what the right decisions are. When you were talking about bringing in a a wide variety of of perceptions or how people feel about what's happening in the country and what's happening in the world, you know, I think that's the thing that, that we struggle with on the podcast a lot is how to decide what what is the appropriate form of wide-ranging. And maybe it's better if I'm a little bit more concrete. I mean, even thinking about the election last year, where we started to really struggle with, like, okay, should we be quoting people who are members of Republican leadership, members of Congress, the president of the United States, when they're saying things that we know are not true? And is it more important to make it clear what politicians are thinking in this particular moment and the untruths that they are discussing openly? Or is it more important to not help that information get any more air? And so I wonder how you think about those kinds of balances, especially when it comes to politics and the way that we cover politicians. Yeah, these are all really good questions. And they're the things that I think journalism struggles with day in and day out right now. There aren't any overarching sort of, this is the right way to do it and every other way is wrong. I think it is all a bit of a balancing act in some ways. 
the United States right now is a very, very politically polarized place. And so we do know that things become politicized, facts become politicized, there is a struggle over factual information. And all of that makes it very difficult, I think, for journalists to do as good of a job as they can on these questions. But I think, first of all, I think if someone says something that is factually inaccurate, calmly but firmly as possible, pointing that out. Things like snark in coverage and stuff like that do kind of tend to push people away. So I think my goal as a journalist is to provide the best, most accurate information that I can in the most accessible way that will actually make sense to the widest um, variety of people. And what I'm talking about is very theoretical. Living this out day to day is a lot of the struggle. The way that you present information can, can color that information for certain people. And people come with a lot of political polarization to what we think of as very factual information. It, it gives even like an extra mission to, to journalism right now. It makes journalism harder. It also, in some ways, makes it more valuable. Sally Busby is the executive editor of The Post. Ariel Plotnick produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Ted Muldoon. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Muhammad and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnick and Renny Svernovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. The Post's audio intern is Corey Suzuki. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.